0: Hey, guys, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, really excited about this morning's study. The title of the message is, Love Every Chance You Get, Love Every Chance You Get, and uh, there are some notes that we gave out this morning, quite extensive, I hope they're a huge blessing to you, Uh, Romans chapter 13, actually we're going to begin in chapter 12, the last verse in chapter 12, then we're going to get into chapter 13, and uh, we've already started in this chapter, of course. But look at verse 21. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, and therefore whoever resists The authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. I mean, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to do this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Look at verse 8. This is where we're going to focus in on, O to no one, O no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the, what's the next word there? Law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, no murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet, and if there's any other commandment, They're all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Context here. Here you have a Jewish man who at one time was one of the chief leaders in Israel. a young leader. His name was Saul at the time. He's part of the Sanhedrin, the governing body of Israel. Super bright. Super bright, like brilliant, like he is a part of the Sanhedrin at a very young age. He's been taught by Gamal, this phenomenal rabbi, and initially he's a staunch enemy of those who follow Jesus Christ. He does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah whatsoever. And uh, the Sanhedrin has commissioned him to go after those who are saying Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, that he resurrected from the dead. So he spearheads efforts of persecution. Staunch enemy. And he's responsible for the first martyr in the church in Jerusalem, a man by the name of Stephen. His whole life changes because Jesus runs him down by his love, reveals himself to him post-resurrection. So this man, staunch enemy at one time, does not believe in resurrection, has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ having resurrected from the dead. Watch this. There's this radical transformation. Jewish man, right? Worshiping the Lord God of Israel, believes he's fully right in his views, staunch enemy of Jesus Christ, ends up coming face to face with Jesus, knocks him off his high horse as he's heading to Damascus, and now there's this conversion at play. And and if you're here for the first time, you got to hear this. This is like one of the greatest stories, actually, in history, where you have a staunch enemy of Jesus who's converted because he experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ, convinced that he's alive, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now he becomes one of the greatest influences of Christianity in the history of man, right? He pens this book. He pens nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. But when he's writing Romans, you just got to understand context, 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 so critical. Well, he begins his book, we talk about it all the time, by identifying that Caesar, the most powerful man in the world at that time, the emperor who was deemed divine. The Romans saw the emperor increasingly as the divine, actually as the son of God. And increasingly, more and more allegiance was to be attributed to the emperor. And listen, if you did not worship the emperor, confess him as lord, you were identified, you know, you were uh, potentially persecuted. Ultimately, many of our followers, uh, of our brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, were actually thrown to the lions in Rome. Just watch this. So, he, he, here's, here's the context. He begins the book. He's talking about chutzpah. He starts the book by saying, Hey, I'm going to paraphrase it the emperor is not the son of God. Now, I'll tell you who the true son of God is: is Jesus Christ, demonstrated by his resurrection. So immediately he confronts the false systems of the Roman Empire that would esteem the emperor as God. Are you with me on this? Then the second thing he does is he ends up saying that the gospel, the good news, and this term evangelion in Greek would be used to announce the birthday of the Caesar. Good news, we're celebrating his birth and stuff. Okay, he says, I'll tell you the good news is is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew and then the Gentile. Then he actually says that the wrath of God, which simply means the, the evidence that man is totally out of right relationship with God, that the reason for the breakdown in the Roman Empire is because that culture, he's right, the Roman culture suppressed the, their conscience, which is the moral apparatus that excuse our actions, and suppressed the reality of Almighty God, and as a result, their mind has become darkest. Homosexuality, sexual perversion, all these crazy things. Listen, he has. You know what he says? He says, "Look, you esteeming the emperor as the son of God, that is not only blasphemy, but in addition to that, I'm telling you that the Roman Empire is a kind of Babylon." And you are, you are under the wrath of God as it stands right now. And the only hope for you is Jesus. The only hope for you is Jesus. So in chapter 1 through 8, he identifies the condition of man and what the cure is. Listen, then when he gets to, this is like huge, like 9, 10, 11, he's talking about Israel. And so he's saying, get context. He's saying, look. In terms of the future, whether or not the emperor is going to continue to be the king of the world, no. Because the deliverer will come out of Zion. doesn't come out of Rome. I mean, just think of the implications of all of this, not just explicit, but implicit communication to someone reading this. It's like, whoa, there's a group of individuals whose allegiance is to Jesus, the true son of God? and that Paul is writing that culture at that time is under judgment, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all those who suppress the righteousness of God, you know, and truth of God, it's like under judgment. So the question is, like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the first century and today? It's like if you're living in a culture that is being identified as the Babylon of the day, all that defies God, and you're being identified. The, the emperor is being identified as not the true Son of God, but Jesus is the Son of God. Is Christianity, is it a movement or is it a revolution? So, in other words, like should, like Christians, should we take up swords? I mean, you got to understand. Like right before he penned this, Emperor Claudius reigned for thirteen years, from forty one to fifty four A.D. He expelled. Jews from Rome. He cut off their ears because of the issue of Christ. And then Nero becomes the emperor. This is like right around. He's pinning this. Nero was married twice, both to men. He he just like hated Jesus. He hated followers of Jesus. He would tar our brothers and sisters, put them on, you know, sticks and light them on fire. That's where the idea of Roman candles come from. So just listen, if we're in Rome, let's just put ourselves in Rome 2,000 years ago. I mean, I got dear friends, you're all brothers and sisters, and I turn a corner, and my friend is, on, is thinking on fire. You think there would be a temptation to take up a sword? Oh, yeah. I say, like, whoa, man. So Paul is saying, hey, you know, do, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with evil good. And when it comes to the government, it's like, no, the call is to be a, a good, responsible citizen. You read the first two verses there, it almost seems like as if like government is God. No, 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 no. Government is God, not God. No, no, no. Government exists to reward the good and punish the evil. So it's like, you know, government is ordained by God, but not every government is approved by God. And in one statement, Jesus said, give to Caesar that which is Caesar, the Lord that was the Lord. So he acknowledged the rightful place of government. Government exists to ensure political and social justice. But you can have a government that's way out of control. It lends to tyranny. It's like you can have a marriage, marriage is ordained by God, but if the husband's going like crazy, treating, misusing, treating his wife and abusing her, it's like things break down. It's like a wife is not to submit to some guy who's wanting to beat her up. Are you with me on that, right? So it's like, if you, ha- you can have tyranny in government, it's like, no, no, we don't bow to that. But Jesus is saying he acknowledges the validity of human government. One statement, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. You got a coin that has his image. But on every human being is like the image of God on their soul. So every human being needs to give to the Lord that which is the Lord's. And giving that which is the Lord's always comes before anything else. So the question is, really, behind the scenes is, is following Jesus, the king, a revolution? Is it an insurrection against the insanity and idolatry of the Roman Empire? And just Paul would just say, no, no, it isn't. No, Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem like an Islamic invader with a sword demanding people to worship him. So, therefore, hey, um, pay your taxes, honor customs. And when, it, when if it ever comes down, I'll just paraphrase. This is church history. If it ever comes down where they're demanding you confess Caesar as Lord, God forbid. In fact, he says in chapter ten, no, if you confess Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Can I hear a big amen to that? So here's what Paul does. He goes from chapter twelve, talking a lot about love, and then. He, he, then he's, he's like, you know, love, and don't be overcome by evil. It eats itself. And then, he, and then he gives us perspective as to the importance of government and a Christian's relationship with government. Then he comes back, actually, to really bear down again when it comes to the importance of love. I mean, it's like with great force and great authority. And he says here in verse 8, you guys, check it out, that love actually um, fulfills the law. And I don't know how that strikes you, but just look up here for a second, okay? It's like law, the term seems so sterile maybe or cold. But the idea of the law in the Bible means there's a God and God revealed himself. So there's original design for life. Like You know, when babies are born, they don't come out with, like, my name is, and it's like, and this is my personality, and I like this. It's like, they don't come out with instructions. They don't come out with the moral code of the Ten Commandments. Never seen it. But God exists, and he's revealed himself. And without getting into the depth of the idea of the law, well, the law is the first five books of the Bible, there's the Mosaic Law that distinguishes Israel uniquely to impact the generations. There's the foundational law, the Ten Commandments. Five of them is identified right here. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest uh, commandment? To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your neighbor as yourself. That's like, Just like the big idea is like, um, he's just saying, you guys, love. Because when you do that, actually... It's like you are fulfilling the greatest authority. You are fulfilling the will of God. How many of you remember the newsman Ted Koppel? Could you raise your hand? Yeah, remember him? You know, years ago, he's like speaking to Duke University. He says, we have spent 5,000 years as a race of rational humans trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime, searching for truths and moral absolutes. And in the place of truth, we've discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we've sustained our moral ambigu- ambiguity. Our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulders. It's a hollowing reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the Ten Suggestions. They were the Ten Commandments and the sheer brilliance of the Ten Commandments is that they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then or now, but for all of time. It's like, yes, nailed it. So the point is, we have it up on the screen, it's in your notes, to fulfill the law, I just want to boil it down, which is God's divine authoritative instructions, purposes, and plan, is to love. Is to love hey, let's go back to Rome. We're following Jesus. And it's like, I just had a... My friend was just put to death. I'm tempted. Like, is this an insurrection? You know, I'm reading this. You have broken down culture, worthy of the judgment of God. What does Christianity look like? He's given it, right instructions here. And he's just saying, hey, I want to double down on this. You know, law speaks of the authority, authoritative divine uh, will of God and so when you love, you are fulfilling the law. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fuf- fulfill. So, in saying that, if we looked at our Lord's life, we would expect to see love. It's Like, what does love actually look like? So, Let's just talk about it a little bit. I mean, Remember when Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem and two blind men cried out, "Son of David, have mercy on me!" and he stopped. Just loved that picture. And uh, he had set his face to Jerusalem. You know, I had something on, on my mind. And Stephanie was yesterday. We're dealing with this ant. These anybody dealing with any ant problems these days? Anyway, was like, I was like, she was calling for me, and I was like, really focus on this ant issue, but um. So, you know, Jesus was really focused on making his way to Jerusalem, and yet he stops for these guys. He stops. And it's just a simple point, and it's in your notes. But Jesus made time for others. He stopped. And it's like when it says here, when it says in verse eight, "Oh, no one anything except to love one another. He's not saying it's a sin to have a mortgage or anything like that. We need to pay our debts off. But he's just saying we need to live as if we are always paying the debt of love off. Just like live that way. You live that way, your life will be better and other people's lives will be better too. So look, Jesus stopped. Just simple point, he made time for other people. I just remember reading a little story about a man took his son out fishing, and um, they fished all day. He wrote in his journal, the dad did, oh man, wasted day, went fishing, caught nothing. His son wrote in his journal, the greatest day of my life, right? Got to be with dad. I mean, it's, it's been said love is spelled T-I-M-E, time. Simple point, watch this. It's like, you know what love looks like? Like, give your attention to another in the moment be present. Really important. Earlier he said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And it's telling us of the importance of valuing our fellow man. This means we need to really listen. We need to really listen. I mean, the Lord made us in such a way, think about it, where we can experience great exhilarative realities and, t- and one tear, we talked about this a couple of weeks, but one tear, you know, coming down someone's, just one, could speak of what? An absence of a loved one, their spouse, concerned for their child. You, you, you're with me on this, right? We all know that. Just when, and we, God made us in such a way we feel things really deeply. And, and, so, and so not to be present with others is such a devalue, really of god bears, because He made us in His image. A joy that's shared is a joy made double. A sorrow shared is but half a trouble. I read a story, true story, of Lewis Laws, who was the warden of Sing Sing Prison in 1920. And the inmates lived... I need glasses, I can't even read my notes. The inmates lived in horrible conditions, really horrible conditions. This guy was fantastic, and he led all this reform, and they just loved him for it. His wife, sweetheart, she would go visit the inmates. She would bring the kids. She would sit, she would listen, she would value, she would pray for them. She would bring them in the yard, actually, of the prison. And in 1937, she was killed in a car accident and the next day, her body lay in a casket about a quarter of a mile from the prison. And all the inmates were gathered at the front of the prison. And the present warden knew what they wanted. They wanted to go pay. Oh, gosh, it makes me want to cry. They wanted to go pay respects to the woman that loved them. It just took some time to be with them, right? So beautiful. As my mom always says, to listen is to love. Just a simple point. Jesus stopped. He he was present. He just simply gave them his attention, not just. He healed them as well. But I think of John chapter 12. Let's turn over there real quick. We're just going to take like some steps up to Jerusalem. But John chapter 12, oh, I love this scene. I mean, you're talking about as Jesus is with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Mary has an opportunity to demonstrate her love to Jesus. In fact, it's so worth reading here, John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Nisan 14, when he would give his life. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary... Took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the oil. Wait, just, this is huge. Like, for one, this oil is very expensive. And so, you know, Bible students say this is like, this is probably a family heirloom. It is worth a year's wages. So here's the thing. Mary recognizes something that others are not seeing. It's going to be Passover in six days. Historically, that's, when, of course, when the children of Israel were delivered out of enslavement in Egypt. But to the day, 1,300 years later, Jesus is going to give his life on the cross, the exodus out of sin and shame and bondage and so forth. We talked about it last week. So she just has an opportunity, like what, to to honor him? She has an opportunity. She seizes it. She has a gift. She gives it. And she's like, like down at his feet. You have to understand the glory of a woman in Jewish culture is her hair. And to actually reveal her hair to anyone other than her husband is like, you just don't do that. But now she's like so at his feet, honoring and loving and blessing. Of course, it's like whoa—that's that's that's an intense picture there. I mean, it—I don't know if you were like in a grocery store and you're like going through the aisles and you turn an aisle and you look down and there's a woman at the feet of a man. You know, you think what's wrong? It's, it's so odd. But how how about if the backstory was she is down on her feet crying because? It, it's, it's the fireman that rescued her child, you know, from the burning home or something. She's, I mean, I don't. I mean, it's just like, oh, now I get it. Oh, my goodness gracious. She, she had an opportunity, I don't know, to express her utmost gratitude, right? Well, look at this here. It's, it's like Judas. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Look how our Lord responds, I love this. It says, in verse 6, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take it, what was put in it. And then Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. It's a simple point. i got to tell you, Jesus stand, stands up for her, right? Can I hear an amen to that? No, right? It's like, you know what? you got a bully in the room here. Does he even understand what's coming out of his mouth? This guy's following Jesus for what he can get out of it, actually. I'm convinced he's just the ultimate consumer. I'm going to follow Jesus for potential positions in the kingdom. I'm going to follow Jesus for, I don't know, monetary reasons and things. But Jesus publicly stands up for her, rebukes him. And then he actually makes a prophecy in verse 8. And he's, well, actually, no, excuse me. He says, let her alone in verse seven. Um, she has kept this for the day of my burial, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Matthew's gospel goes on to identify that Jesus said, this, this, this what Mary did, will be spoken of in generations to come. So he actually prophesies that this demonstration of love is going to be spoken about. In generations to come, and we're talking about it this morning, and therefore we are experiencing the fulfillment of prophecy. That's my point, right? But I just want I just want to simply say it's in your notes, and this is the second aspect. It's like, you know, love stands up, stands up for the vulnerable. Love stands up for the vulnerable. Um, I, I read a story about a man by name name of Sugahari. He's a Japanese man. He was he, he, in World War II, and um, he had a chance to help uh, Jewish refugees fleeing Europe. And his leaders, Japanese leaders, said not to not to help them with any type of passage, with a passport or anything. And for a whole month, he hand wrote, he hand wrote these passports and these what was needed for, for, transfer to get out of what would become just in just in months under kind of Nazi control and lead ultimately to Jewish deaths. So I mean, it's like, and and did I tell you like he hand wrote like two thousand of them? You know, I say okay. So, l- long story short is is in 19, like 1969, the Israeli government contacted him because he ended up, as I said, rescuing, well, they, they asked him to make like 6,000 lives because of getting these passports and what was needed, and then impacting future generations. I mean, thousands of thousands of people live because of what he did. He didn't think too much about it. He just kind of just, he, just, he said, it, I had pity on them. And when his son picked up the phone, the Israeli government, he was interviewed and he said, you know, I wasn't even that excited. I had no idea. My dad mentioned it, but we never talked about it. But, but, but the point is is that it's, it's simple acts of love, giving people our attention, standing up for the vulnerable, the Bible tells us that love never fails. And it's like, what do you mean never fails? It will never fails in being good. But actually, it's a Greek word that simply means this, that once it's at play, once there's love, once we love, that somehow, some way, it like it follows us or, or goes along with us all the way into eternity, actually. Um, love belongs in eternity past, love belongs in eternity future, it belongs in eternity past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And once it's at play, it never fails. So it's like the idea is like, if we're carrying a, a, um, uh, a, a, a uh, oh gosh, I can't remember, like, a, uh, I'm, I need some coffee, no. We're, I'm so sorry, if we're having, carrying some luggage. I was just looking for luggage, that's all I was looking for. If we're carrying some luggage, my, this is embarrassing, my son's watching me melt down, right? I mean, but carrying luggage and, you know, throughout our lives there are some things that just fall out, you know, but, but once love is at play, it, it's forever. And so, like, we see these in these stories because it continues to impact. With was Sagahari, he loved, he cared, and it ended up impacting generations to come. And of course, we think of our Lord Jesus, right? He gave it all for us, despising the shame, and yet the greatest sacrifice of love and selflessness has impacted the world like nothing else. Um, love is an action. Love is not a sentiment. It's an action. It's, like, it's not feelings-based. And, and it will oftentimes take us out of our comfort zone. It doesn't always feel good. Uh, it values others. It influences them in such a way that builds them up. Um, bodily, soul, and spirit. And as I mentioned, once at play, it never fails. So it's like, here's the thing. Sugahari, this great man, and by the way, he's in the... He's in the uh, the, the the street of the righteous now in, in Yad Vashem there in Israel. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is like, what position do we have or where are we in our life that we can help carry other people's burdens, we can give them attention, we can pray for them, we can bless them, it matters. And I think of our precious Lord saying to good old Pete, he said, Pete, Satan has been asking for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. And Jesus said, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed. For you. It's like, well, what does love look like there? Love recognizes, hey, life is a way of piling up. There really is a spiritual battle behind the scenes. You know, if we just pause right there and we just ask, hey, was something wrong with Pete? Um, there was Like, he's a human being. But, uh, no, he was following Jesus. He was doing a really, really good thing. Like, you can be smacked at in the will of God, but be experiencing intense opposition. Are you with me on that? It's like, Pete, you've been following Jesus for three years. Good job. And by the way, he has a calling when you're going to preach the gospel at Pentecost, 3,000 of your fellow Jews are going to come to faith. It's like, so the point is, is like, you know, Pete, Satan's not after you because you're the biggest it in the entire world, and we're all sinners, we're all weak, we're all under construction. He's after you because he wants to undermine your highest good and undermine the work of the gospel. But I have prayed for you. The the simple point is, is that we love each other when we pray for each other. Can I hear a big amen to that? Less fault-finding, more prayer, right, more prayer. The Bible says praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this in with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And our Lord told Peter, I'm praying for you. Does he still pray for us? I mean, the Holy Spirit prays for us. Jesus lives to make intercession for us. And of course, when the Lord was on the cross, what did he say? But, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He could have reacted. He could have called, you know, hundreds of thousands of angels to deliver him, but he was super patient. The simple point is, is that Jesus fulfilled the law. We're, we're to love. It's like whatever chance you get, just love. I mean, love, love. I mean, live in such a way you're paying off a debt, uh, and that. That is, you just you just love, and when you do, it's like this killer investment. It's the greatest investment in life because it is eternal, actually. But Jesus was patient and forgiving in relational adversity, rather than reactive. We talk about this a lot, but the Bible says, "Love suffers long and is kind." It's a Greek word that speaks of adversity, friction, and injury in relationships. In other words suffers long and it's contrary to the natural response to adversity and conflict which is to react and recoil and to become self-protective which makes one's heart grow smaller and more callous. It tells us therefore that in interpersonal relationships love actually feels pain and suffering. It's rarely sensual or euphoric. Uh, it's certainly not based on feelings. And genuine love will take you out of your comfort zone. It will. It did for our Lord, who despised the shame of the cross, but there was not a greater act of love that brought the greatest healing to man. And we mentioned this many a times, but it's like again, the Lord's on the cross. Rather than being reactive and calling judgment down on his generation, he's super patient. They have no idea what they're doing. They're intoxicated by their stupidity, and he's offering forgiveness. And as I mentioned many times, it's between the retreat. When we're in, 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 in struggles with individuals or we're in arguments or you know, there's tension, you, pa- you want to be patient rather than reactive. So you want to you, you back up, and it's between like the retreat and the advance It's between that retreat and the advance that's like one of the greatest learning curves in our life. If we're always just reacting, 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 someone cuts us off, we cut them off, that's how we live, we learn nothing, we only contribute to the problems of humanity. If we're patient, 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 I can learn a lot. I I can learn that most conflict in relationships are not intentional. It's because of miscommunication, a lot of moving parts to life. And it's been hot lately. Have you noticed that, right? I mean, it's like that, that can make you a little grouchy. And then, you know, people react differently based upon education or culture, past experiences. Sometimes people are speaking, they're speaking out of their pain. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? Why, is, why are you saying that here? Uh, uh, could, go, could go all the way back because they, they were, I, it's pain. It could go back to their childhood. It's just something came out and but if you're always reacting, 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 they're idiots, you know, put people in files, it's like your heart gets smaller. No, nothing gets better. It's just that the, the world just begins to, to, to further break down. When God's love is active in our life, it really is a rescue from destructive cycles. Not only does it rescue us from ourselves, but potentially the one who's receiving the love. So it's like, oh, no one anything except to love one another. Boy, that's great advice. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The third point is live your life like, like you're paying off a debt. And it's like when you're paying off this debt, you're actually making an investment, the greatest investment you could ever make, which is love. And love is eternal. So I'm going I'm to wrap this up for time's sake, but just notice here in verse 9. Now what he does is he underscores actually five out of the top ten of the Ten Commandments. He brings into the picture the law itself. And the idea is that, hey, love does not harm. It edifies. And you're going to see this when it comes to the law. Like, verse 9, he says, you shall not commit adultery. Well, like, adultery is having sexual relations with someone other than your spouse. That is not love. That's harm. That's destruction, right? Unpleasant subject. But it's like, if you have sexual relations with any other person than your spouse, actually, let me generalize it, it's not love. It's not love. No, no, I think it's love. No, it isn't love. No, you're actually harming yourself, you're harming them. There's a lot of harm, we don't want to get into the weeds of it. So let me just say it again, okay? I mean, love does no harm. Love edifies. Love protects. Look at the law. When it comes to sexual relations, man, there's original design. We need to be sexually pure. If it goes outside of original design, now i'm speaking to grown ups here right it's not love it's harm i mean adultery basically says three things to your children your mother is not worth much and your father's a liar and a cheat honor is not nearly as important as pleasure in fact my child my own satisfaction is more important than you it's just harm it's breakdown it's insanity that's what he's saying. And then when he says, like, thou shalt not murder, of course, devaluing human beings, and thou shalt not steal. Um, yeah, don't don't actually acquire any possession illegally. I mean, that that brings harm, and it's just that's just terrible. It's like my grandmother's rings, her wedding rings were stolen in a home that she, that she was in, and she was being cared for. It's like, well, I mean, that happens often. I've heard about it, right? And I'm not trying to dramatize it, but... Um, yeah, that harmed my dad. You know, it's just like, it's just like that's. It's just, it's just honoring to my granddad. Somebody just ripped off her her rings, right? It's harm to the family. The point is, is that the law protects us. Love protects us. Thou shall not bear false witness. I mean, don't lie. I mean, it's terrible. It breaks. It's degrading to uh, to other human beings. And thou shall not covet. It's like. Why is covetousness mentioned here? Because covetousness puts possessions over people. And when that happens, it's not good. It's like like David wanted Bathsheba as a possession. He wanted her. So he lusted after her, and it led to the murder of her husband it's like why I mean, what's co- I mean covetousness is being possessed by possessions it's pe- putting things before people and when you do that it's 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 a downward spiral the 10 commandments begin with loving the lord right love lo- love the lord it ends with thou shall not covet just like david wrote the lord is my shepherd I shall not, what, one. It's like, man, contentment in Christ. Can I hear a big amen to that? Amen to that. Hey, listen, one of the things, just for time's sake, I just wanted to note, and and I I did it in the notes here, but um, is that Jesus disadvantaged himself in the highest form of selflessness to advantage the world, right? I mean, And that's a good place where we can just end. And son, if you could come, that would be great. But let's pray at this time, Lord. Lord, we're in awe of your love. We're in awe of your love, Lord. And you disadvantaged yourself uh, in, in incredible selflessness for the benefit of others. Would you help me and help all of us to be like that? And we know that we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. And, um, and thank you, Lord. Thank you that receiving your love heals us, and thank you that giving your love to other people actually rescues us from ourselves and benefits the recipient. So, uh, Lord, we want to embody what we saw in your life, and we know in so many ways that's impossible, yet with God all things are possible. Thank you, Lord, you're making us more like you. And I just want just, to, just in an attitude of prayer, I, I just want to simply say this. This is a message that's been primarily driving to, to believers, those who follow Jesus and know Jesus. Um, but I want you to know something. I want to just have a few remarks to someone here that may yet have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior I, just wanted, I want you to know the Lord loves you. He loves you, loves you, loves you, really, really loves you. And uh, He loves you enough not to leave you the way you are. And He wants to give you something. He wants to give you Himself. He wants to come into your life and forgive you of your sins. He wants to give you hope beyond the grave. He wants to fill those empty spaces within. I mean, He, he, he wants to bless you with Himself, actually, with relationship with God. Look, God made everyone. We're all His creation, but not every person actually has relationship with God and therefore not a child of God. But the, Jesus would make that, and He did, that clear distinction. That, and He won't force Himself on us. You know, I just made mention of—we didn't really address it here—but I just made mention of Jesus disadvantaged himself, right, for the advantage of others. And I'm talking about on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says he was treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history, your sin and mine. And I mean, just to think of it—I mean, he had—he actually had you, me, he had us—we in mind. Actually, had the world in mind despising all all the insanity of it, of course, the utmost pain beyond description, disadvantaging himself for your benefit because he loves you, because he cares for you. But right relationship with God is almost like a present. It's like, you know, someone gives you a present for your birthday or Christmas. you, You have to receive it. You need to open it. And it could be said with one hand, we open this gift The Bible says it's called repentance. It's turning from our sin, turning to God. And with the other hand, it's called belief. I need to believe that what Jesus did is true. What we believe matters. You say, what, what does the Lord want me to believe? He made you. He loves you. He's revealed himself in his Son who hung blood, gave himself on the cross, bridged the gap between God and man, The reason we see such breakdown in our world today, and it's, you know, it's intense, is because man is misaligned with God. If more people turned to Jesus, there would be more wholeness and peace and righteousness and hope. He's the only Savior, and He wants to come into your life. And I just want to, I want to pray, and this is the prayer of asking Christ to be Savior, Lord. If you want to invite him, you can do so. He's standing at the door of your heart knocking. Pray this prayer with me if you would like to open your heart to him. And church family, if you'd like to join, that would be great. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying for me and resurrecting from the dead. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Lord, come into my life. Fill me with the life of God. Teach me to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my life, making me your child, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.